And I think fear of intimacy is like fear of death. We have all got it, because what is at stake in intimacy? The most precious things you own, which are like the core of your being. The fear of intimacy is like the fear of death. Oh my God, Ken Page. Thank you. Ken is the author of Deeper Dating, which is a book that I highly, highly recommend. If you have a fear of intimacy and dating is or has been hard for you, Ken is a psychotherapist and a coach, and I am delighted to talk to him about how to drop the game of seduction in early stage dating, the cheap aphrodisiac of a risky relationship. I think you and I can relate to this, this idea of unavailable people or risky people or people that aren't a good fit for us being attractive and magnetic and sort of an aphrodisiac. We talk about the importance of recognizing who is in service of our greater purpose and who is holding us back like those unavailable people and what it looks like to let those people go and the difference between attraction of deprivation and an attraction of inspiration. I'm grateful for Ken and I am pumped for this episode. Oh, and by the way, stay tuned because at the end of this episode, I will talk about my next course, which is From Attraction to Connection, a course on playful healthy flirting, and connecting to love with courage and clarity. How fitting. My name is Sean Galanos, and this is The Love Drive. Ken Page, could you please introduce yourself? I'm Ken Page, and I'm a psychotherapist and a coach and the author of the book Deeper Dating, How to Drop the Games of Seduction and Discover the Power of Intimacy. And I'm the host of the Deeper Dating podcast, and I'm the co-founder of the Deeper Dating platform for single people to meet. I am also someone who has struggled deeply and greatly in my own intimacy journey and my search for love. And I am a happily married uh, gay husband and father and citizen of the world. Mm. Well, welcome to the show. So glad to be here. Wow. Dropping the games of seduction, that's sort of like the first thing that popped to me as you said that. And how just a lot of the stuff that people are teaching is about seducing and seduction and how to attract that special someone and how to like find the love of your life. And you're saying how to drop the games of seduction. Yeah. It's an opposite path. While the crowds are marching in one direction, I'm encouraging people to march in the exact opposite direction. The parts of ourselves that we have been timid to reveal and that we think might not be cool enough or acceptable enough or worthy enough are our greatest intimacy genius. And there's a backwards journey that we need to go back and reclaim and de-orphan the parts of ourselves 
ourselves that the world has told us are just not acceptable, because those are the places where our magic lives. So it's an opposite journey to what we get taught. Mm. I can imagine that that is hard for some people to believe, because, you know, who we are sometimes is a little embarrassing. It's so true. And there's a process that has to happen before we could do this kind of like wild leap into space of showing who we really are. And that process is a kind of inner reflecting and reckoning. What are the parts of myself that I was taught were too much for the world, too strong for the world, too intense, or too sensitive, or too tender, or too different? That's the first part, is saying, what are the parts of myself that the world told me I have to keep in hiding, I have to be ashamed of, won't attract people to me? And then we need to name those parts. And then we need to remember who and what taught us that these parts of us were somehow deep flaws. And just in the act of doing that, we will begin to get glimpses, tiny little flashes of the worth of those parts of ourselves, a part that perhaps was so sensitive that we were shamed for it, a way that we were powerful in a way that we were uh, reduced from other people who are frightened of our power, just by the act of saying, what are the parts of myself that I had to push aside, that I had to airbrush, that I had to hide in a closet? Just the naming of those parts, we begin to remember, oh, there is something beautiful here. There's something precious here. There's a part that if I got rid of that, it would be like amputating a piece of my being. So the light begins to shine the minute we do that. And in all of my courses, all of my books, everything I teach, that's the first stage of the process. What are the parts of myself I thought were not okay, were not acceptable, needed to be abandoned? And then what is the worth in those parts? If I just think of myself, which is what I often do, I, you know... I don't think that my sensitivity was really celebrated at a young age. Mm, right. The message that I got from people close to me was that I was too sensitive. Yes. I cried a lot. I was definitely like a crier. I had tantrums, temper tantrums. I was really angry. I felt things really deeply in ways that the people close to me couldn't really connect to. Yeah. And one of the things that came up when you were talking about, you know, who are the people and what did they say? And if I'm thinking of like a teacher, you know, that might have said that I was, that I needed to like buck up or stop being so sensitive, really, what does he or she, what do they really know about me? Yeah. Right? Like how wise are they really to tell me that, you know, my gift of being really sensitive is, is actually not a gift. And if you hold that kind of lack of awareness on their part with the incredible degree to which those things influence us, maybe influenced you, that this teacher that to this day you remember had such an influence, that 
points out something really rich and important, that around these precious places, which I call core gifts, we're highly sensitive to criticism. We get wounded most easily. Like someone, another teacher might have said something about a part of you that you felt comfortable with, that was allowed in the world, and you would have just thought, well, they're a jerk. But this one, to this day, remains with you, and that's what happens to us. And that's this deeper and richer journey of reclaiming of self that needs to happen. Well, there's also this idea that people can praise you know, a certain, let's say a core gift, certain aspect of your personality over and over and over and over again. And it might not really sink in, but then one person criticizes it. And then it becomes the evidence that you've been waiting for that there's something wrong with you. And that's because in those parts of ourselves, our soul is at stake, because these are the real parts of us. Yeah, that really captures it. And The theorist Winnicott said this really wonderfully, Donald Winnicott, who wrote a lot about development and developmental stages and uh, intimacy and connection. And he said, we all have a true self, and then we create a people-pleasing false self. And the purpose of that is to protect the true self at all costs, so that the true self doesn't get wounded in just that kind of way, doesn't have those arrows go in. And what he said was, he said, the true self is so precious that sometimes we would actually rather die than have that part be left open for wounding or annihilation. And I think that really speaks to the ways in which we hurt ourselves, hurt our bodies, do things that are really bad for us and we know it. It's very connected to this sense that in the deepest places, we're not worthy. And that is so often because we have not learned how to honor our core gifts, or that we get so wounded or traumatized there that we cover those parts up so deeply. I watch my son, who's a teenager, who was a very highly sensitive person and um, had to kind of build a tougher exterior. And at one point he said to me and my husband, he said, you know, I used to have an empathy disorder. I felt everything, and I had to cut that out if I was going to survive in high school. It was so poignant and so moving, but I get it. Well, it's beautiful and sad. Yeah. Right? Yeah. That he had to do that in, in order to survive high school. And I think all of us have to do that in order to survive dating. (laughs) Right. Because dating is such a painful process. Again and again, we get told those tender, tender parts of ourselves, that's like maybe for later if you find your great partner and woo them and seduce them and attract them. But for now, baby, you better shut that part of you up because it's going to get you in trouble. You got to lock them up first. You got to put a ring on it and then you can show them who you really are. Exactly, exactly. And that's why the search for love is like one of the greatest spiritual journeys of our lives. Because it demands, if we're really going to look for healthy love, because this is a formula that I find as amazing as looking up at the stars at night. It's that breathtaking to me. And it's this, it's that the degree to which we treasure and dignify our core gifts That's the degree to which we have happiness in our relationships. Mm. That's the degree we become sexually and romantically attracted to people who are truly 
wonderfully good for us. And the degree to which we shun those parts of ourselves or deny them is the degree to which we create unhappiness in our lives and the degree to which we're going to be sexually and romantically attracted to people who just chip away at our sense of being. And this is what I call the deeper physics of dating. And to me, it really is like looking at the night sky, that there would be a blueprint so powerful about self-love and bravery and authenticity embedded in our entire relationship life and our search for love and our life story. To me, that's just amazing. To me, that also sounds like I want everybody to have that. And I'm not sure how to help people other than to <laughs> have them take your workshops <laughs> and read your book and um, and connect with your work. It sounds like idealistic. Yes, it's deeply and essentially idealistic. It speaks to a benevolent blueprint. Learn to love yourself and you'll make better choices in love. Learn to love yourself and you're going to have a happier and richer life. I do think it is also idealistic. And I, I, I think that it's a very kind of benevolent picture of the structure of things that to say that the degree to which we learn to treasure these deep and wild and sensitive gifts in ourselves is the degree to which we're going to make better choices in love. Yeah, it's really idealistic, and it's also really true. And it kind of is like what your grandmother might have told you, which is just be yourself. But the truth is that just being yourself is so not easy. So as benevolent, as hopeful as this message is, there is a mountain to climb. This is a hard, hard, challenging journey. So both of those things are true. Yeah, well, there's that's the, you know, the more I do this work, the more I realize just how paradoxical a lot of relational skills and tools and dynamics are. Yes. Both this and that. Yeah. Both idealistic and attainable. Mm, yes. Both really hard and worth it. So much so. And also, I think that's like a really deep truth. Like, just to give an example, I've been a serious meditator for like a really long time, like 50 years. I kind of discovered yoga and meditation before the Beatles and Maharishi and all that came onto it. And it was just a passionately important part of my life since I was really little. So 50 years later, I still meditate so badly. I meditate with the brakes on every single day because it's hard to bear what lies at the center of the circle. So homeopathically, drop by drop, we need to learn to bear this. It does not come easy. We need to learn to bear the heat of intimacy and the intensity of authenticity. It is so hard to be authentic. It's so, so hard. So, so you know, there's another myth, and the myth is, oh, I get it, so now I'll just do it. Well, no, we will fail and fail and have clay feet again and again and again. But if homeopathically, drop by drop, we're learning to just love those parts of ourselves more and more and take risks, our lives will become more beautiful and we'll mm. make better choices. Mm. Yeah, uh, man, I sort of like 
hooked onto so many different things there. I know, there's so much. And I love this theme that you brought up when you and I talked together. To me, it was like, oh, no one in all these years has brought up that theme before, about how hard it really is to live in authenticity, how scary it is, like that secret reality that that people just don't talk about. Well, what I sort of attach to that is this idea that it's really hard to believe that you are worthy just the way you are, or and I'll speak, I'll speak for myself that I am worthy. And I've kind of, I've gotten to that point now, but for a long time, I didn't believe that I was worthy of the, you know, of really whatever it is that I wanted, right? Like the relationship that I wanted, the fully, the fulfilling, connected, present, sexy, honest, adventurous relationship that I wanted. I didn't actually think that I was actually worthy of that. And to believe that who I am, just the way I am, is actually perfect for somebody else. Yes, yes. Imperfectly perfect. So, so true. And um, I think it was Winnicott also who talked about this concept of what he called good enough mothering. I'm not sure it was Winnicott, but I think it was. But, you know, in in these days that we were becoming aware of psychology, a lot of moms started really worrying that they were damaging and wounding their children because of their own kind of traumas and internal struggles and problems with parenting. Oh my God, what I'm doing is not good enough. And so, you know, Winnicott came up with this concept of good enough mothering, which means that if you, in a basic and essential way, enjoy your kids value your kids, help them learn skills of mastery, and make them feel, you know, essentially taken care of. That's good enough mothering. And will it be perfect? No. But will it be good enough? In most cases, yes. And so, I want to be a proponent of this concept of good enough self-worth also, because for me, in a relationship now with someone who is so wonderful and sexy and kind and loving and caring and good and decent. 11 years into this relationship, I still don't believe it. I still don't feel fully worthy. I talk Mm -hmm. about this with him. I, because of my traumas growing up, don't hold full worthiness. But I think I have good enough worthiness, where in an essential way, I have enough worthiness that I have been allowed and enabled and supported to create a life that's really, really filled with love. And that's with a lot of low self-worth, but enough self-worth that I've been able to create this. And enough, I guess I would say, bravery or courage to say, who I am is a treasure. Even though there are echo voices constantly saying, "Uh uh-uh. Not good enough. Not good enough, right. Not worthy. You failed. You hurt someone. You were not enough. Those voices are there, but the bigness of the heart that I've allowed myself to have, the bigness of the love that I allow myself to have in my life has been big enough that I've been able to create a very rich life. So how do you do that? How do you trust with the inherent goodness and good enoughness? Mm. I mean, I have, I've spent decades working a formula out to do that. And I would say that the heart and the soul of it is, there's a few different pieces, but the, the heart and the soul of it is that 
All of us have core gift impulses again and again throughout our days. And they are aching, they're, they're qualities that are like aching for truth, aching for love, aching for connection, aching for living fiercely and courageously. Whatever those heartbeats, those heart pumps are of longing or inspiration or need, our core gifts never go away. They're constantly whispering at us, screaming at us, knocking at the door, or being so damn silent that we have to know something's wrong. They're constantly kind of trying to make their voices known. The act of loving those parts of ourselves, the simple act of loving and naming and claiming those parts of ourselves, which, which I, you know, for example, I have an intensive that's six months long, working with a small handful of people on these issues. We spent almost three of those months working on helping people name and honor their core gifts. That's always the first stage because it's it's so. It's at the heart. It is at the absolute heart. And so the more that we can ask ourselves two questions, what hurts my heart and what really fills my heart, when we can ask those questions again and again in our day-to-day life and really respect the answers, we will begin to notice our core gifts because they never stop trying to let us know that they exist. It's not that hard, but it takes listening. And I think that that listening to the aches inside of us, the hurts and the joys inside of us in day-to-day life, those are the messages in a bottle of what our core gifts are. Mm. Can you share with us one of your core gifts? Sure, I would love to. And I also just want to loop back too, because I want to ask you, I'd love to ask you that same question that you asked me. So just to say something about my core gift, a core gift. So, uh, you know, it's this like mixture of all these different things, but it's a very kind of passionately sensitive self. It's this combination of passion and sensitivity that... um As a chubby gay boy growing up in the 60s with Holocaust survivor parents was kind of the most hateful and embarrassing and mortifying thing that I could think of. It was so feminine. But it was also so intense. I got in trouble on both ends. I got in trouble for being too soft, and I got in trouble for being too intense because of my love of kind of speaking from my heart. So these were qualities that I felt shame around my entire life. And so because of that, I kept being sexually and romantically attracted to people who didn't have those attributes. They were cooler than I was. They were less tender, and they were less kind of getting in trouble with truth. And those were the guys that I thought were the really sexy ones. Like, why couldn't I be like them? And... um Because of the way that my journey unfolded, I had to dismantle that self-hate. As as many gay people have to do, as everyone in the world in some ways has to do. So that those are two qualities, like a sensitivity where I feel hurt and hurt for the world so deeply that it could knock me to my knees. And a way that I'm just so damn fierce around truth and what's in my heart that I stun people and just demand a lot of the people close to me. So those are really two kind of attributes. 
Mm, that's beautiful. I'm curious, and I'll, I'll answer your question after, which is one of my core gifts. Yeah, yeah. I guess it's got two parts. What is one of your core gifts, and how have you learned self-love? How have you learned to love those parts of you? What helped? I think I'll start with number two, which might help inform number one. Sure. At one point, I decided through a lot of therapy to stop using drugs and alcohol mm. uh, because that was, for me, a numbing agent, basically. It was my way of not feeling. Oh, yeah. Because I felt a lot. And I, and I, I felt a lot, and I didn't know how to deal with it. Yeah. So step one was making this decision to, to, to stop turning away from feeling. And I also did that through a lot of therapy. So I want to be clear about that. I did, you know, several years of therapy before getting sober and now have been doing several years of therapy with my newer therapist. So a lot of talking about what's going on, a lot of talking about my feelings and welcoming everything that I feel instead of rejecting it or trying to change it immediately just sitting with it, sitting with discomfort, sitting with uncomfortable feelings, sitting with shame and pain and fear and guilt, and letting those emotions kind of do what they need to do instead of actively fighting them. Yes. And that has helped a lot in terms of self-love. Uh, somehow, fundamentally, over time, understanding, knowing right? Like deep knowing that there is nothing wrong with deeply feeling. There is nothing wrong with being moody. I mean, being moody gets a really bad rap. Oh, I love that. I'm very moody. And I've also found that uh, when I just give it the space that it needs, it, it passes much faster. And that's not the goal. The goal isn't for it to go away fast, but it's to let it do what it needs to do, right? If there's a message, a learning there, or just you know a piece, a piece of reflection or time of reflection, but letting it do that just kind of gives it the time that it needs, whatever the feeling is, or the or the movement or the moment. So that is sort of how I've come to be more self-loving to myself, and I still talk negatively now and then. I don't let it happen for very long, right? Feeling a negative emotion, quote unquote negative, uh, or an emotion that most people would rather not feel is different than actively being mean to yourself. I don't have a lot of tolerance for, you know, negative self-talk. I usually just cut, I, I cut that out sort of pretty, pretty close to when it starts and to try to replace it with something nice, you know, like, oh yeah, it makes sense that you would feel that way. Exactly. Yeah, those are the magic words. It makes sense that you would feel that way. Or even, I remember once I was going through a lot of different feeling, and I, um, I was, I was young. I was like thirteen, and I was talking to my mom, and I just was trying to put words on how I didn't know what I was feeling. And she said, "So, she said you could even think of it like a glass of water with like a lot of swirling silt inside it." And you can't see through it then, and it just needs time to settle before you can see again. That was so beautifully helpful for me to learn patience during those yeah. times. Yeah, wow, I love that, right? Like, just sit for a bit and see what settles. What's left, 
what's yes. left also you know the swirling silt is kind of beautiful because absolutely uh, it can be really confusing and there can be multiple you know emotions stacked on top of wounds stacked on top of old stories and it can be really really hard to to make sense of what's happening and slowing down and sitting with discomfort usually get a little bit more clarity I mean, we could keep using this analogy. It's a good one. Yeah, it's a really good one. It's stuck with me for a lot of years now, for 50 years. Yeah, yeah, so true, so true. And um, I, I think that, that there's this myth that you get emotionally healthy and then you're emotionally healthy. Just like there's this myth that like it's a pathology to have fear of intimacy. And I think fear of intimacy is like fear of death. We have all got it, because what is at stake in intimacy? The most precious things you own, which are like the core of your being. So we're all afraid, and we've all been traumatized, and there just needs to be room for that, that, that fear of intimacy, and that this is not a straight-line process. It's more like, I think growth is a lot more like a rocking process. Like, you move ahead, and you embody that. You occupy that new space, and then there's a pull back to home, and then we move forward again, but it's that rocking motion that actually is not a bad thing and is not failure, but it provides this kind of movement that allows us to keep progressing and moving forward if we're, if we're just a little bit more kind to ourselves. And, and I think, too, that in any arena where we have a core gift, we are going to process things differently than other people. And I think like the moodiness that you talked about is often a sign of a core gift because the processing is so deep that that there's not kind of an easy answer. There's this this kind of complexity and uncertainty. If you're a deep processor, that's the beauty of art. That's the beauty of creativity. And actually, um, at some point in uh, this interview, I'd love to teach a process that is one of the most powerful processes for creating self-love and finding our meaning and truth that I know. It's one that I do every single day, practically, of my life. So, um, yeah, 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 that just acknowledging that deep processing makes it easier. And I'll but but I just want to say one other thing too that is a kind of corollary to that, which is that that often people who are falling in love, they meet somebody, they're attracted to them, they like them, the feelings are growing, things are fine, the sex is nice, and then all of a sudden, like they realize they're feeling something deeper. They're falling. The ground that their feet were on is kind of like going lower, like they're going into something really deep. They're, they're beginning to fall in love. At that point, often libido kind of disappears. Mm. And they're like, oh my God, this is really weird. Like, I'm not able to get an erection, or I don't feel excited, or I can't get wet. I can't, I can't do these things. Or, I, I, I don't even know what to do with myself. I feel frozen. I feel wooden. What is going on? And what they don't realize is that a 
deep processing is going on, and their sexual expression hasn't caught up with it yet. They're just dropping down into a new level of vulnerability and trust and passion and caring. And it just takes a little bit of time for their sexuality to catch up. So that's just, I think, a, a, one example of, of, of how deep processing can be kind of confusing to us. Oh, I love that. I love this idea that sometimes our libido is not going to match our, our heart space. Yeah. And it doesn't, it's not a, an indication that there's something wrong with the relationship. No, it's often an indication that there's something right with, with, with the relationship. And mm. the way you just said it is so cool. That's like, that's a whole other subject is how do you let your libido and your heart space, um, really dignify each other. And that's like, that's, I guess right there, that question is the essence of wonderful sex, the essence of sexual growth, right there. <laughs> so I'll just a side note, while we're on the subject, uh, this is 100% happening with me in my relationship. Yay. The libido is connected to the heart. It is incredible. Uh, we've known each other for a while. We've been dating. It's hard to describe. This is a very strange relationship, but uh, we've been dating in a much more like engaged way for you know several months now. But we've also been dating for a couple years, and there's just been a really long transition to partnership. Uh, there was a transition out of another relationship. She was in another relationship, and now we're together, and. It's it's been non-traditional in the way we've gotten together. It's not like, you know, you meet, you go on some dates, now you're seeing each other, then you're in a relationship. It's it hasn't been that sort of like linear path. It's been a lot more like a rocking motion, like you said earlier. Mm -hmm. It's funny, before I met her, my libido is really low. To the point that I was like, you know, trying all these alternative ashwagandha and all sorts of supplements and programs and, you know, I got tested and the, the levels were fine, but the libido was just like not, it was almost non-existent. And it has come back with a vengeance. It is outrageous. Like the, the intensity in which I am like wanting to have sex with this, with, with my partner. Um, it is spontaneous. I'm, I feel like a teenager again. So, anyways, oh, it chills hearing what you're saying. It's so beautiful. It, it's, it's incredibly beautiful. <laughs> and when we met, she was actually, she's, she's younger than I am. She was saying something about the fact that she thinks that she could be asexual. And at that point, I, like, that was like a little bit of a red flag for me, you know, because I, I, I was like, I don't want to be in a relationship with someone who doesn't want to have sex, you know. Even though my libido is not, not where I want it to be, I still want. Yeah. And it has just, it's been fantastic for both of us. It has been fantastic. And, it, and it's been like this for almost a year now. And it hasn't, doesn't seem to be slowing down. If anything, it seems to be ramping up. Um, so I'm not saying this to brag. But to celebrate. But to yes. celebrate. Yeah. Yes. And like, you know, I'm, yes. I'm 30, almost 38. And this is around the time where you start seeing a decline, probably like actually earlier in the 30s. Um, and I'm happy to be seeing more of an increase. So, 
Oh, that's so wonderful. That's so wonderful. And I just I just do want to say a couple of things about that, which are like, that is a gift of getting older in some way, because when you're younger, you never stop thinking about sex, and it doesn't help you make the best choices a lot of times. That's so right. um, that's, that's really, that's, uh, you know, something that's really true. But the other thing is that love and eros often goes subterranean when something deeper is gathering underneath and inside. And there's an argument to be made that that you and your partner, both of you, there's that thing where you go into a chrysalis state where it seems like nothing is happening, but there's this necessary gathering of forces. And um, often when it feels like nothing is happening, and we're not in abusive or self-abusive situations. Mm. Often, it's a gathering of forces getting us ready for what's next. So, that's a possibility, too, there. It does feel that way. That's so cool. That's so yeah, wonderful. We, <laughs> there's been an absence of friction in our relationship since almost an absence of friction. But but in the it, since, since we've like committed to each other, a complete absence of friction in the relationship. Um, I suspect part of it is like, you know, delayed honeymoon. That's part of it. Uh, and part of it is just, uh, you know, to bring it back to core gifts, like I am authentically me with her. That's it. Yes. Uh, I am not hiding any part. I mean, I have shared things with her that I have never shared with anybody. And I'm, a, I'm you know, can be considered an oversharer. Uh, and I'm not hiding That's anything, so you know, beautiful. and I'm not doing anything I don't want to do. And, you know, just to say something about that is that eros and fear are often really connected. And there's amazing, amazing research on that, which if we have time, I'll, I'll mention. But um, eros and fear are often connected. And so there's a cheap a aphrodisiac and that is a risky bad relationship because that's got like fear and risk and so it's sexually really exciting but there's a healthier very fierce and very amazing one which is the fear of risk of revealing who you are and that is scary Brene Brown says it really well she says she says vulnerability is the first thing I look for and the last thing I'm going to show you. <laughs> so, mm. you know, I I think that 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 what you're describing, the act of sharing the stuff that is that scary to share in an environment of trust actually fuels turn on and eros and love and sex and heart and sexuality mixing together because it's 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 um it's it's a beautiful existential fear. It's living on the edge. It's you know really living on the edge of life, and that that brings eros in a beautiful way. And the risk is big, right? It is the risk of showing yourself, right? Who you really are, who I really am, and for her to say ew or no, I don't want that anymore, and to lose everything that we've built is scary. So scary. It's really scary. So scary. Um, and to your point, I've spent years in my 20s and early 30s chasing the cheap aphrodisiac of, you know, novel sex with unavailable people. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> a lot, a lot of time spent in that. And, and, you know, after a while, it just stopped working. 
Yeah, yeah, luckily, luckily. And I just want to say something else there, too. <laughs> yes, I, I just really want to acknowledge you're talking about sobriety and um, and and what drugs and alcohol can do. And I just, uh, I just think that is infinitely more important than people realize. Infinitely more important. And I'm just such a celebrator of sobriety, which doesn't necessarily mean for everybody that you need to use no intoxicants at all ever. But if there's a compulsive tendency, it probably does need mean that you need to stop using those intoxicants altogether. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that when we do that, sobriety is just, it's one of the most beautiful and hopeful things that exists. And uh, it's the ground and under which real intimacy can happen. I tell people this all the time. I say that if you are with someone or you are someone who has an active addiction or an untreated or undertreated or unstabilized serious psychiatric condition, those things need to be addressed before you're going to really be able to be happy in life and in love. So go for it. And anybody who's listening to this who says, you know, I think I do drink too much. Mm-hmm. Um, I I just can't tell you how strongly I believe in 12-step programs. I think they're just incredibly beautiful and powerful. There are other approaches to the key is though that nobody gets out of that stuff in well not nobody but virtually nobody gets out of that stuff without deep help and support. We don't do it through our best thinking. It just or our willpower. It just it doesn't work. Amen. <laughs> yeah, I completely agree. I remember uh, my one of my first therapists, Doctor Doctor Jay Talkoff in San Francisco. Uh, when I got sober at twenty five, I also at the same time left you know my then lo- longest term relationship and was starting to date a little bit. I think I'd had you know maybe a little under a year of sobriety and was sort of starting to get excited about dating again and maybe having sex with somebody new. And I remember saying to to my therapist, you know, I am just terrified. Yeah. Yeah. I am terrified of hooking up sober. It feels so awkward. Yes. And he looked at me and he said, awkward and natural. That it was natural for me to hook up with somebody without alcohol. Yeah. Or drugs. Yeah. That is a natural state. You know? And you thought, I don't get to be afraid, insecure, neurotic, shaky, uncertain, and 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 be successful in dating. But the truth is that's exactly what you get to do. That is the definition of authenticity. That's right. That's right. Is showing up with the fear with the uncertainty, with the, you know, terrified that you're going to get rejected, with the fumble, the awkwardness, the not knowing what to do, the not knowing what to say, all of that stuff is is natural. It's natural. It is that very precious kind of um, adolescent awkwardness that that is just, just, there's like, I really think this, I think that there's a ring of fire that we have to go through as we, this is an image that I think captures the map that we're talking about here. And it's just of a target. 
And if you picture the closer you get to the center of the target, that's the closer you get to your core gifts, to your authenticity, to the beating heart of your humanity, whatever it's feeling. And the further out you get, the more airbrushed you are, the more defended you are, uh, the safer you are, but then ultimately the more alone and empty you are. And the journey, and this is a fabulous, this is a different exercise. Like, and, and this is another thing, like if you picture, okay, there's the bullseye, that's pure authenticity. Most of us cannot bear to live there. It's very hard to live there. Some of us can to different degrees, but it's very hard. But if you picture that first ring in the target around that bullseye, I call that the gift zone. And if you are living there, it's almost like like if you imagine sleeping with a lover and you're not holding each other, but your shoulders are touching, and somewhere inside you know that you're skin to skin with them. If you're even that close to the heat of what's at the center, you're in magic land. You are somehow going to be inspired. You'll act differently. You will have impulses toward closeness and truth and creativity. That's magic land to live close enough, just close enough, imperfectly, to the beauty of what's at the center. And when we do that, our worlds really change. So that's a question. This is an exercise that we could all do. We could just picture that target. People could try this right now. Just picture this target, right? The center is pure authenticity, You are in the beating heart of your humanity. You are there. You're living there. You're expressing from there. And then the outside, the further out you go, the less that's true. Just at this moment in your life or in a relationship, if you took a pin and put it right at a point on the target, where would that pin go? You just picture that. And you leave room for that, you don't judge yourself, you don't stress, you just go, ah, okay, this is truth, this is truth. And then you say, what could I do to scooch on a little bit closer, one drop, one homeopathic drop to the center of that circle? And if you do that, there will be a ring, there'll be a chime, there'll be a, there'll be a, a, a vibration, there'll be a something that happens when you do that, that will be beautiful and important and powerful. And that's this kind of act that we could do at any point. How could I just move the pin a little bit closer to the center? Who would I be? How would I act? Can I do that? Can I do that even right now? Wow. It's so simple, right? It's such a simple process. And you can do that over and over and over again. Can, should, absolutely, <laughs> all those things. Can, should, should do it. I, I could just, I, I'm sort of just picturing this exercise, you know, next time I talk to my parents, how can I show up even more authentic? Beautiful. Yep, yep, yep. Mm-hmm. Next time I talk to my partner, next time I talk to my brother. Next time I have a conversation with a business associate, how can I show up that much more authentic? Yeah, exactly. And 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 this is the deal. The closer we get to the center, the warmer our being is. And this is a physics analogy that's super, super powerful. So gravity is defined as a, a pull that takes that pulls outside objects into the center, toward the center of the the thing that has the gravity that's that's it's defined as the force that pulls outside things to the center of you of whatever it is and the more mass 
an object has, the more gravity it has. And to me, the more authenticity we have, the more gravity we have, the more powerful, the more amazing, the more shocking or stunning or alive or embodied or influential or generous we are. So, the more you move toward the center, the more mass of self you will have, the more yourself and your heart will be palpable by the from the world, and the more you will draw outside things to the center of you, including your parents or the people you love. And I suspect that the easier it becomes to be discriminating about who you let into that circle. Oh, so much so. That's so, that's so big. That's so big. You know, in the work that I do, I would say the place people get stuck the most, the most is being able to let go of relationships that don't serve them or actually really kind of stand up and create change where, where, where they can and where that's needed. Um, you know, but when in a romantic relationship, you, you know, you have to know ultimately that you're, you're not going to change your partner. And if they don't treat you kindly and fairly and be available and have integrity, it really is best to just do something about that. Either get out or do whatever it needs you need to do to see if change can happen. Yeah, there. You, I mean, you can make requests for behavior modifications. You could have conversations about how their behavior makes you feel. There's a lot of stuff that you can do before you end the relationship. And also sometimes ending the relationship and making space for something else is absolutely the thing to do. Yeah, yeah. Um, even when the relationship is like pretty good, it could still not be right for you. I sort of remember, uh, well, I definitely remember, I used to work for Yahoo back in the day. Like, mm. oh, geez. <laughs> I think I quit in like, you know, 2008 or 2009. And it was a great job. I got paid really well and I could kind of do whatever I wanted. I could wear shorts at work and I was like respected by a lot of people. And it was just not right for me. It, it didn't ultimately serve who I was and who I wanted to be. Yeah. And I'm glad I quit because, you know, eventually, you know, it led to us having this conversation right now, mm -hmm. this podcast mm -hmm. on love and intimacy and, and trust and respect. But at the time, I didn't know what I wanted. I just know that it wasn't that. And I also didn't know what was going to fill the space. Yeah, yeah. And of course, being able to quit a job without having another job is incredibly... a. a position of privilege. I, I realize that. But, you know, the, I'm using the this example because I didn't know what was going to fill all of the space created from leaving that job. And that's the same thing with a relationship. You might have a good relationship, but it's not the one that ultimately serves you and you are dissatisfied for whatever, whatever reason. It's okay to leave not knowing what's going to fill that space, that void. Yes, yes, it's it's really true. But uh, but the, you know the caveat that I would add here is both feet in until both feet out. Ooh. You know, yeah, yeah, that's from Marianne Williamson, and I love it. So, in other words, do the risky work of truly asking, of truly saying what hurts, of getting help, of admitting the ways that you've not been there for love. Really do the work first, because uh, that's just such a precious and important thing. And it, um, 
I there's so many things for us to talk about, but but I just do want to mention the work of uh, someone named David Schnarch. It's a funny name, a uh, brilliant, brilliant theorist about relationships. And he talks about the crucible concept of monogamy. And I'm not saying this to say that monogamy is the only way. I'm saying it because I think it captures something really big and important. So what he says is he talks about a crucible. And, you know, so we all have our character logical traits, many of which are not the best or the most useful. They're forged in the heat of our survival. And just like steel, they don't bend. They were forged and now they're there. They are in that shape. Those are very, very, very hard things to change. So, um, in a marriage, in a committed relationship, in a monogamous relationship, if you think about a crucible, a crucible is filled with intense heat, so intense, the heat is so held that it is intense enough that you could put steel into that crucible and then reshape it and rebend it. But it takes this profound amount of contained heat. If there's a crack in that crucible, you will not have the heat that is needed. And that crack can often be a non-monogamous relationship, because what you're not getting from your partner, you're going to get over here instead. Whereas if you're at a space of truth and request and demand and pain and need and openness, and you share it with your partner around the pieces that are not being met, because you know you ain't got nowhere else to go because you're not going to be with another person, this is going to be your future the chances of being able to hold the heat of that crucible in such a way that the steel of characterological change can happen for them and for you is infinitely greater. And that's why I say both feet in until both feet out. Yeah, I love that. I love that caveat. I love that example. Uh, I realize that in my example, you know... <laughs> Some people, and, and that, that has been me in the past, like I have been unwilling to do the work. Yeah, me too. Every day. I've been, every day. Yeah. <laughs> I've been unwilling to be two feet in, and I can count several relationships. I can recall several relationships where it got hard, it got intimate, it got scary, and I left immediately. Yeah. Yeah. I did not do the work. I didn't even share what was going on with me. I just left and I and I chalked it up to wrong person, wrong time. Countless times, me too. And it's sad to think about that, but true. Yeah. Sad and also like it led to me being here today with the partner that I'm That's true. with today That's and same true. for you. So sad, but sometimes necessary for us to have these epiphanies, these moments of clarity, these awakenings, that uh, we are perhaps not living life with both feet in. Yes. And and just to acknowledge that there's also a state of like good enough mothering, uh, good enough love, um, good enough self-love. There's also like a state of good enough two feet in, <laughs> both feet in, like not doing it perfectly. Like, like you know, I could list for you the ways that on a daily basis I hide my vulnerability from my husband. 
uh, I'm, I'm humbly and sadly aware of the ways that I don't show my vulnerability. And God knows, I do. I show a lot of love. I show a lot of that. But I'm so aware of my clay feet in love, so deeply, deeply, sadly and beautifully and poignantly aware of my clay feet. But it's okay, because even in the presence of that, I love around my clay feet. I love around my fear of sharing. And um, and 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 I gather my courage to be able to go to those deeper places as I can when I can. I can also imagine that there's like you know good enough relationship. That's right. Because we we could look for perfection in a relationship and and leave the current one for the potential of a better one. Absolutely, so true. You know, and with my husband. If I didn't, if I hadn't learned all I learned, I would have left him really much earlier than like early, early in our relationship. I would have left him. Like I, I had so many moments when I wanted to do that. And I had friends who, uh, just even in the earliest stages would, would tell me like, Ken, what the fuck are you doing? And part of the reason why, and I think this is really important, is because we were so different from each other. He is a tech guy. Talking about feelings is very hard for him. And as you could see, there's nothing I like love more than talking about feelings. And um, he's very capable of making space for me to talk about my feelings. But for him to talk about his own it's very difficult. So it's difficult for the two of us because, um, you know, it could feel like I'm like the one like dancing naked on the table while he's there fully dressed because I'm being so vulnerable. And these things were very hard for me. But because of his goodness, because of all of these qualities that I loved, and because of my friends who reminded me of this, who said to me, fuck this up and I'll kill you, uh, you know, as I had done so many times before, because of those friends, I stayed. And what I came to realize, what I came to realize is that even though our language couldn't hold a mutual exchange of feelings, our atmosphere did. The atmosphere that exists between the two of us is so filled with love and goodness and kindness and sexuality and, and all of those kind of fabulous things that, that, that that keeps us aloft. But I would not have known that if I did my usual, which would have been, boom, I'm out of here. So mm. I just want to leave room for that too, like the deepening of closeness and how that can happen. I, this atmosphere, yeah, is sort of mind blowing. Yeah, this atmosphere concept, and and you know what, people could do that. Like you could do this, and I encourage everyone to do this in your dating life and with everybody you're with. Your head is going to be telling you one thing, but drop down into the atmosphere of shared space between you and this person, and it's going to tell you everything about what's really going on. And don't use that as an excuse to excuse hurtful behavior or incongruous or inconsistent behavior. Thank you. Right, right. No. <laughs> like, oh, the atmosphere is good, but, you know, they didn't call when they said they were going to call. Or uh, they thank you for spoke this, yeah. to you in a way that 
Because you can fall in love with atmosphere. You're so right. You are so right. You are so right. My dear friend, Hara Morano, who's the advice columnist for Psychology Today, she says it great. She says there are three C's when it comes to deciding who you want to be with. And they are character, character, and character. And I think that is so deeply true. You know, this is something I talk about in my work a lot, that we have two circuitries in a very crude kind of way of attraction. One is attractions of deprivation, where the turn on is that the person almost loves us right, is almost kind enough, almost available enough, and just getting them to turn the corner and love us fully is just such a kind of unbelievably seductive venture. Those are attractions of deprivation. But there's another circuitry of attraction, and that's attractions of inspiration, where our turn-on comes because, of course, we have to be sexually attracted, but our turn-on comes because of this person's goodness and decency and integrity and presence and ability to care and to see and to hold who we are. And that's that's what we want. We want those, we want the physical attraction and the attraction of inspiration. But that means that we have to look for inspiration almost first. And um, not to ramble on in this stream too long, but just to say one more thing. This is the key question that I have people, that I encourage people to ask in their search for love. Does my soul feel safe with this person? Mm. That's the biggest question. Everything else figures itself out. I mean, you can't force attraction. There has to be attraction. But everything else figures itself out. If your soul doesn't feel safe with someone, that's not the person to be with. I think this is the appropriate place to wrap up our conversation because it's such an important point. Does my soul feel safe And am I attracted to inspiration or deprivation? Yeah, those are such important things. And I know we need to wrap up, but I did promise that I will do this, that I would do this inner mentor process and I could do it in a couple minutes if that's okay. Let's do it. Let's do it. It's the best. It's the best. I do it every day. Okay. So uh, unless you're driving or running, close your eyes and you could do this too if your eyes are open and you're driving or running. Oh, I'm... I'm going to do this as well. Oh, please, please do it. It's the best. It's great. Okay, so what I'd like you to do is I'd like you to imagine a time that you felt deeply comfortable in your own skin, just right with yourself. Remember what that felt like. And just let yourself kind of taste that memory. And now, imagine a time that you felt deeply connected to to love, to spirituality, to just a deep and rich sense of love in your heart. Whatever that was with, whoever, it could have been in nature, could have been with a partner, could have been with an animal, a child, doesn't matter. A time you felt so deeply connected to love. Remember what that felt like. Just hold that to your heart. And now imagine a time, remember a time that you felt very empowered. I don't mean empowered over people. I mean that rich sense of mastery, that you spoke your truth, that you lived your truth, that things worked, that you were able to hold your own and hold your truth and get something done and create something and be the authentic you. That sense of mastery. 
just remember any moment of that and how that felt in your being, in your body. And just hold all of these kind of tastes, these wonderful memories together. And now imagine the you that lives that way, fiercely, gloriously, unapologetically. A you on the other side of all your inner glass ceilings. Like the you you're meant to be. A you with your wings fully open. You don't have to picture this perfectly. Just get a glimpse. And look at that you. Look at the face of that you. What do your eyes show? What does your face show? Just picture that face of this you that is just essence of you. Pure you. Hold that. And now we're going to do an imagination exercise. Jump in to that you. Like method acting. Don't even think. You just become that whatever. Become that you. Just imagine that you have become that you. That you're standing in the heart and the soul and the belly of that you. And in a way, it's not even such imagination because it's you. You don't have to do it perfectly. You don't have to earn anything. Just imagine. Just taste that feeling of, of you with your wings open fully. And you've become that you now. And now from this place, look at the you of today. And call out words of guidance to the you of today. You could speak them out loud. You could speak them silently. You could write them. Call out the words of guidance that you most want to impart to the you of today. Do that now, silently, or however you want to do it. What do you most want to say from this place, from this vantage point? Okay, and you can come back to this later and do more, but you kind of got the essence of it. So now, as this you, I want you to imagine holding your arms out for a hug. Holding your arms out. And the you of today comes into your arms. And now you're both. You're the you of today and this essence of you. This holy you, this awesome, amazing you. And you're both hugging each other and you get to feel it from both ends. And just from being inside the arms of this you... Just say thank you. Say, can we, can we meet, can we meet again? Can we do this again? Can we do this a lot? And just take that message that you got and just hold it to your heart. You don't have to do it perfectly. All you have to do is love that message. That's all you have to do, and it's going to change you. And the more you do this process, the more you will become that you. And the more you will develop a love relationship with that you, which is just one of the sweetest relationships that could ever be. So just hold that, hold that message, and picture living it today. This is a process you could do as often as you want. And I teach it in my podcast, too. I think it's episode three. Maybe it's episode five. I do a whole podcast on this. Hmm.
So thanks for letting me take the time to do that too. <laughs> wow. That's a beautiful exercise. Yeah, it really is. It, it somehow completely bypasses self-criticism. Oh, completely. Yes, it's amazing. I, I, don't, I hardly know anything else that does that as well for me. Thank you for sharing that with me and, and with the listeners of The Love Drive today. Thanks for letting me, Sean. Yeah, that was really beautiful and very powerful. Powerful. I came up with softness, warmth, you are okay, and keep helping people. Oh, I love it. And that's like, you could feel that, right? Like, that's your essence. Yeah, there is zero criticism in that. Yes, that's your essence. So where can we find more of you and how can we work with you? Oh, well, thank you for asking that. Um, so so I actually have an upcoming six-month intensive that's just for a small number of people that want to do very deep work with me over a half-year period and have already done a lot of work on themselves. That's one option. Everyone can, and, and, and you can find out about that and everything else at deeperdatingpodcast.com. Um, there's also an online course, which is very beautiful. It's an audio course where I guide people through kind of this whole journey with a workbook included. Uh, that's another way to work with me. And uh, my book, Deeper Dating, definitely the Deeper Dating podcast is filled with rich, lots and lots of rich teachings. And um, Sean, at some point, I'd love to have you on the podcast as a guest, if you'd be open to that. I'd be honored. That would be great. So uh, you'll get to hear Sean there, too, in the future. And the other thing is that I, with my husband, have created something called Deeper Dating Online, which is a way for single people to meet each other in an environment that is warm, safe, and fun. In other words, that actually incubates intimacy. And it's a joyful and powerful process that's getting a lot of attention, even though it's just launched. And to find out about that and get on our mailing list for events near you, just go to deeperdating.com. Mm. Beautiful. Thank you. Yes. And of course, you could find me on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook. Just look up Deeper Dating. Yeah, you've got, the, you've cornered the Deeper Dating. Yes, the I have. Keyword. Yes, I have. <laughs> <laughs> and the final question that I have for you, Ken, is uh, what does love mean to you? Love to me is the humbling act of learning how to love, of choosing the action of love, even when it's hard. Love to me is about that humble opening space where you say yes to love, and then you say yes to wherever that yes is going to lead you. And that's not always easy. So there's a deep humility in it. There's a deep sense of being a student. I think love is learning how to love. Mm. Thank you so much, Ken. I really appreciate Thank the you, Sean. And the wisdom. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you for spending this time with Ken and me today. I am so grateful for you tuning in. Really, it does mean the world to me. And I'm pumped to announce my new course, Building Connection, Playful Flirting and Authentic Attraction. Tools? 
to help you connect to love with courage and clarity. So if you want to learn to connect with people that turn you on, if you want to get clear about what you want and how to maximize your courage, and if you want to build the type of love and sex life that you are proud of and that serves you and your higher purpose, then join us. $75 until July 27th, $125 after, which is, you know, pretty damn reasonable for what you're gonna get. We start August 6th. Go to thelovedrive.com forward slash flirt, F-L-I-R-T. And I hope you'll join us. Let's learn how to connect to love with courage and clarity together. Have a beautiful week.